chapter 2, and we will be covering five verses tonight uh, from verse 28 of chapter 2 to verse 3 of chapter 3. And the theme tonight is that we are children of God. So uh, most people, most scholars would break up 1 John into three or four uh, expositions, uh, all talking about our identity as believers, how we can know that we're truly following Jesus, that we're truly Christians. And this would be kind of the first main split. It's not very noticeable in the text itself because verse 27 and 28 kind of flow together. Um, But this is going from uh, John's exposition, the first part, to the second part, and then there'll be a few more um, later on in chapters uh, 3, 4, and 5. But the theme, again, is is talking about children of God, and as we cover these five verses, we're going to stop five times and see what it means to be children of God. You see, you and I, we all, in our identities, have lots of titles, right? Um, Personally, I I can just rifle off that I'm uh, a father, but I'm also a son, I'm uh, a husband, but I'm also a pastor. And and so you've got a whole bunch of different titles all pointing to your identity as well. Now, biblically, the Bible says that we're a whole bunch of different things, right? Christians are uh, some things that are kind of humbling, honestly, like um, uh, we're servants or uh, we're disciples or we're even slaves, and then there's some others uh, that are more exciting. Like Bible says that, that we are the body of Christ, that we are, we are soldiers. We are, um, for some, this would be exciting. We're the bride of Christ. For dudes, I don't know how exciting that is. But for ladies, that might be uh, exciting. There's lots of, um, lots of titles. And one that we see not only tonight, but we'll cover next week as well, is that uh, through the blood of Jesus, we enter in, Christians enter into the family of God. We are children of God. What does it mean to live out the identity of being a child of God? You see, when, when someone says, hey, you're acting childish, it's usually not a good thing, right? Like being a child isn't very flattering. Children are known for being immature, inexperienced, maybe a little bit whiny, right? Narrow-minded in their understanding of life. So then why in the world is it a good thing for us to be children? Well, Jesus, he tells us in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3, he says to those around him, as, as children came near to him, he said, unless you become like one of these children, you cannot receive the kingdom of God. So he says, you've got to be like a child to come into a kingdom and live out your identity as a child. And he tells us in Scripture that we've got we to humble ourselves like a child, that we've got to seek him like a child, that we've got to receive him or have faith like a child. You see, to have a child and father relationship with our Heavenly Father is a special thing. You don't call people children flippantly. Right? It's a big deal to be called a child. I don't just randomly walk around Salina and say, Hey, buddy, you're my son. Hey, you're my dog. Like, that would be odd, right? Because you know only the closest people to you. Your kids are incredibly um, unique in their position, that they are in your family. And you don't hand that title out lightly. And God's saying, I want to have... I want to have a relationship with you that is so unique. I want to show you love that is so unique. 
I want you to be born into a family that is so unique that I got to call you children to help you understand and grasp what you mean to me. So tonight as we walk through this, um, and I hope that uh, your heart is opened as you remember what it means to be a child, uh, but we're going to be talking about how to live out our identity as a child of God. Verse 28, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says, And now, little children, abide in him. So verse 27 said, through the Holy Spirit, we abide in him. He says, abide in him. You see that over and over and over and over and over. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. First thing we see is that children should be close to their father. Children should be close to their father. Again, John says, abide. Remember, abide means to remain close, to live in, to have this incredibly unique, special, intimate relationship. And he says, abide in him so that when he appears, what does it mean for him to appear? Well, we're talking about when Jesus comes back, his second coming, when we are standing before him, he is judge and we are being judged. That we might have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. At that time. That's a big deal. A couple quick questions, I think. Uh, Number one, if you're just taking this for face value, does this mean that we can, as believers, lose our salvation if we're not abiding in him, if we're not remaining close to him? No, it it doesn't mean that. Um, This is talking to Christians, and it's reminding them that we will be judged for what we have done with what we had on earth, that we know the command to abide, and he's saying, listen, If you want to be sure that you're found in Christ on the day of judgment, you need to be found in Christ on the day of judgment. And he's going to look at you and be able to say, either you were faithful or you were not. And I'm telling you, to be faithful means you stay in him, you obey him, you love him, you abide in him. And the next question, I think, would be, well, how in the world does abiding give us confidence That we don't shrink back from shame when we see him face to face. Well, that's where the word abide and understanding what it means here is crucial. And it means two things. Number one, to abide uh, means to obey. So any kid knows if you don't obey your mom or your dad, it's going to be kind of rocky in the household, is it not? You You can't have a healthy, thriving relationship without obeying. Why? Because they're Dad, their mom, they know what's best. And all the parents said, amen. And you are expected to obey. I'm sure sometimes when I come home, uh, some of the kids can approach me in confidence and others are... Yes, and some shrink back. Yes, they do. Based on, based on how they obeyed that day, for sure. And so obedience helps us to have confidence. Not that you're going to be perfectly obedient all the time, but when you have a heart for obedience, when you actually walk in obedience, you can have confidence. The second part of abide is closeness in relation to presence. That you spend quality time with the Father. That you're obeying and that you're spending quality time. Why is this important? Why would this give you confidence and that you wouldn't shrink back when Jesus comes? Because we've known from the beginning an intimate relationship with the Father was the purpose of all of mankind. This is why we were created. So if you're obeying him, if you're spending quality time, if you're being with him, then you have some confidence. You got confidence. Again, 
those factors in a close relationship with God, being that you obey him and that you uh, are in his presence, that you spend time with him. And, and just so we're theologically correct, when you place your faith in Jesus, his, in, his Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, indwells in you. It goes inside of you. So there's technically no way, if you're a Christian, that you can be away from God. Like you can't escape your own body. You can't escape the Holy Spirit. But it's the intentional that's the key word, intentional spending of time with him, to, to be in prayer, to, to be with him, to be focusing, meditating, dwelling on him. Because we all know you can have someone right by your side and not be focused on them, correct? So how much more when you've got the spirit inside of you can you try to ignore him? But if you try, if you try to, um, to walk with God in obedience, but you don't care about the presence part, then you're going to find yourself as religious at best. If you flip it and say, well, I'm going to abide in him, but I care mostly just about his presence, and the obedience thing isn't as big of a deal. Like, we'll get to that, but it's mostly just about being with God. Then you might have a warm spiritual experience, but Jesus isn't Lord. Jesus isn't Lord. And you can't fake, the, you, you can't fake it for very long when we talk about this closeness, obeying and, and being in his presence. Because being in his presence, that one by itself, if you actually spend time with God, it's going to compel you to obedience. And on the flip side, if you say, well, I want to be obedient, and you're actually on mission with Jesus, you're actually fulfilling and obeying the commands of Christ, they're going to force you, because they're risky and they take faith, they're going to force you to be pressed into the presence of God. So, so you can't fake it for very long. You can't fake it. Let me ask you this, for those of you who got kids. If right now, like just taking stock tonight, if your kids had a relationship with you that resembled or mirrored the closeness of your relationship to God right now, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Because, you know, on earth, you want a close relationship with your kids. If it mirrored the relationship that you have with the Lord right now, would that be good or bad? That's a scary question. For the rest of you, let me, let me ask you this. What on earth was your relationship with your father like? Because this is a big deal and changes the way that you view your relationship with your Heavenly Father. We've talked about this quite a bit in the past. Some of us, some kids, have uh, really good earthly fathers. And it helps us to understand what a good Heavenly Father is like. Some of us have had really rough experiences with our earthly father. Maybe some of us don't know our earthly father. Or we've had our heart broken by our earthly father. And it completely messes up our trust and our understanding of a relationship with a heavenly father. I uh, I think I had a, a pretty solid relationship w- with my dad, uh, even though he wasn't a believer. And for most of my life, honestly, I wasn't either. Um, but I can tell you, a- as good of a guy as he was and uh, the healthiness that I thought we had in our relationship, I knew we had some flaws. And I'll give you a couple examples just to see or to show uh, the point. Number one, when it came to obeying my dad, like I, for the most part, I would obey. Maybe not so much in high school, but for the most part, I would obey. But when I was younger, my dad would do the 10-second the countdown thing. 
Did you ever have that happen? Like when, when you're disobedient and they say, I'm going to count to ten. My dad would sit in his recliner and, and, and he would say, one, two. And he would slam his foot down and, of course, we would all scatter. We would taunt him. We'd get close to him. We'd get close to him and say, three. And he'd get out of his chair a little bit, four. And we knew, like, unless he got to ten, he ain't going to do nothing. And so we could just tell him. But when he got to ten, it was bad. Here's the problem. When it comes to obedience, sometimes I struggle now with my relationship with the Heavenly Father and with delayed obedience, right? Because I learned that in my earthly father's experience. Presence, my dad, he worked hard for us. And I loved him, and I do love him. But the truth is, we came from a household to where when it came time for supper, uh, we would all eat at different places all around the house. And although we were in the same house together, we were pressing with each other, we were kind of emotionally distant from each other. I've had trouble ever since then, to be honest, truly connecting with people. And when it comes to a heavenly father, man, sometimes I struggle. Sometimes I struggle to connect. And I wonder how much of that was because of my earthly father's experience with me. Let me, let me challenge you tonight to reflect and realize how much your experience with an earthly father projects onto your experience with the heavenly father and realize our heavenly father is not flawed. Jesus did not die on a cross so that you could have access to a flawed father. That you can come to him with trust and confidence that he's not going to fail you and that he's not going to treat you in ways that you might have been treated poorly in the past. He's a good dad. Verse 29, John says, If you know that he is righteous, and we know that, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So again, he, over and over and over, you want confidence? You want to know? You want to be sure? You want to be sure? You want to be sure? Here's one more way. Children act like their father. That's the second point. Children act like their father. So again, if you know that God is righteous and he is righteous, then you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I um I know and I have known that children act like their father, but um in the past 6 months or so Tara and I we've had the conversations about this personality assessment that I take here at the church that all of the, the leadership team does called the SOI. Called your, it means your style of influence. And it really just talks about how you relate personally uh, with other team members. And, and this has been incredibly helpful because it's shown me so much about how I function in life. And um, one thing that we realized just a few months ago was that I'm what they call an emotional balancer. Meaning when I walk into a room, or if you walk into a room with me, whatever emotion you have, I want to give the opposite emotion so that we can balance out the room. I don't know why I do this. It's just, I just, just do this. So if you come in and you say, oh, I took a test today and, and I, I did amazing. It was, oh, it was awesome. I, I would then maybe say something like, ooh, but mm, last two tests you haven't done so hot. Right? And you'd be like, what are you doing? Are you, you're a killjoy. But then if you came in and said, hey, I took a test today and it was horrible. I did not do good at all. I say, hey, remember, 
couple times ago, you did, you, did, you did good. It's okay. Keep your head up. And I would encourage, right? So most people would just call this being disagreeable. I don't know. I, I call it emotionally balancing the room out. Well, here's the thing. I, um, I got a little boy that most of you know quite a bit about, and, and he is showing some of these same traits. Just last night, we were talking to him, and he loves Finding Nemo, and he has a little poster on his wall about Finding Dory, some little fish movie thing, right? And, and we realized, Tara and I, at the, same second, at the same time, that he hasn't watched Finding Dory yet. And so I looked at him with excitement, and I said, Buddy! You haven't, you haven't seen Finding Dory yet. We can watch this. And I had a big smile on my face, and I was trying to get pumped. And he looked at me with sadness. He says, yeah, but someone else has Finding Dory. We can't watch it. Like, he doesn't even, even know he does. Like, you just made that up. You don't know if anyone else has that movie. They've made more than one. We can access it from somewhere. But, like, he just, he doesn't care, right? This morning, I got home uh, at lunchtime, and he's been potty training a little bit. And Tara said, he didn't have one accident this morning. And I looked at him, and I did a high five. I was like, dude, that's awesome. You didn't go in your pants. That's awesome. And he said, but yesterday I went in my pants. And I was like, oh, my gosh, just give me a high five, man. Let's just be happy in the moment. And, and Tara looked at me, and she knows he does this. Why? Because he's just like his father. You see, when you're born into the family of God, there are inherent things that you will just do because you reflect and represent God. you got a spirit from God, and it makes you act like God. So, back to this verse. He who practices righteousness has been born of him. Does this mean that Gandhi, who did lots of righteous things, is born of God? No, we know the whole context of Scripture tells us only through Jesus Christ are you going to be born again. So not everyone who does a good deed is born of him. It also is important to recognize what does practices righteousness mean? Well, it means to do what God says is right. To do what God says is right. Here's what's crucial about this. To practice righteousness is not just to do good things. Because good in the eyes of man is still filthy rags in the eyes of God. That's why he, he tells us our filthy, our, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to him. Right? And, and so righteousness is doing the will of God. That means you might do some things that people don't think are good. Right now, if you stood up against some of the, the uh, laws being passed in our country, if you stood up against some things that mainstream media is saying, yeah, this is where we need to go as a culture, they, people would tell you, you're not doing the right thing. You're not doing something good. You might be all alone in it, but you're doing the will of God. That's what it means to practice righteousness, to do what is right in the eyes of God, not man. Not man. We know that that's a sign of being born of him. In the next two chapters, born of him, born of God is going to be used ten times over and over and over and over. That's what this whole theme of being children of God is tied directly to the idea that you're children because you have been spiritually born again. We're not just calling anyone who shows up to church a child of God. We're not, we're not going to use that flippantly. We're saying who has been spiritually born again? through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through faith in that, by the grace of God, then you can call yourself a child of God. Now keep in mind, as we've talked about for the last couple months, the context and why John is just hammering home these points is because these false teachers who come from this Gnostic belief that your spirit inside is 
because it's spirit and invisible, it's inherently good. And that material things, including your physical body, they are all broken and inherently bad. So they would view their spirit and their body as being completely disconnected. And what they were doing and what they were teaching is that if you have this inner knowledge of God, if you're connecting with him in your spirit, then basically you can sin with your body and have no remorse and be just fine in God's eyes. And the whole purpose of John writing these books, these letters, is that you cannot claim to be a Christian and then not live like it and expect to be good with God. That's that's a whole premise. And you say, oh, wow, I don't know much about this Gnostic stuff and this whole weird false teaching way back then. That was 2,000 years ago. Look at us in America. Is that not what most Christians in America tend to struggle with? Is that we'll claim to follow Jesus but we don't live like it. We don't live like it. I think there's a great deceit in the evangelical church uh, nowadays that equates spiritual growth with knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Learning, learning, learning. This is um, the, the backside of the Sunday school movement. The front side of the Sunday school movement is awesome, that people are learning the Bible. The bad side and the backside of it is that they, they start to believe that spiritual growth is simply about learning, learning, learning. That if you just go to Sunday school long enough, learn the Bible front and back, God's going to be pleased. And God's saying, if you obeyed half of what you learned, you'd be doing all right. You'd be doing all right. John's saying you've got to obey what you've been hearing. Let me ask you. Do you practice righteousness, doing the will of God? Like, when was the last time you knowingly did what God told you to do? Now, I know that um, as you follow Christ, there's things that, that you do. You love people. You show um, that you're obeying the commands of Christ, sometimes without even thinking about it. But when was the last time that you had to make a decision? Man, this isn't going to be popular, but I know this is the will of God. And you said, I'm going to do the will of God. If you look back at your recent track record and you can't really find that instance, that might be a problem. That might be a problem. Remind yourself that if you want longevity and practicing righteousness, because you know, as, as we read this verse, There's going to be some guilt, some insecurity saying, I can't practice righteousness all the time. If you want longevity, you got to remember, (laughs) you're only a child because you were born of God. And the birthright that came with being born of him isn't just salvation, but it's the Holy Spirit given to you. So when you focus on a spirit-led life, a Holy Spirit-led life, it's going to be your only way to truly have the power and longevity of practicing true righteousness. Otherwise, you're going to get burnt out real quick. Moving into chapter 3, verse 1, move a little bit quicker in these next three verses. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. So he's already said this a bunch of times, but he says, see what kind of love the Father has given lavished or given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You can picture him just with authority. And so we are. 
We are. He is trying to convince these believers. Don't believe that you can confess Jesus with your mouth and just do whatever you want. We are children of God. And we live differently, but it's because of the love God has given us. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So the third thing we see is that children of God have a better acceptance. Children of God have a better acceptance. Now, here's how you can break this verse up pretty quick. Is the first half is that God's love is incredible. God accepts you. Doesn't mean he he wants uh, to embrace your sin. He paid the price for your sin, but he wants you. He wants you. God accepts you. The second half of this verse is the world, therefore, then will reject you. That you got to choose one. You can be accepted by the world and rejected by God or accepted by God and rejected by the world. And of course, it tells us, John does, that the reason the world doesn't know you doesn't recognize the way you're living, your values, your principles in following Jesus, is because they didn't even recognize Jesus himself. They wouldn't recognize God if you came here right in front of them. And most of them didn't recognize Jesus as God when he walked during his ministry. You see, acceptance in general is usually good, but not always. Like, I mean, think about it. If ISIS came up to you and said, you know what, I've been watching you lately and I think that you'd be a really good candidate to join us. Like that, that would obviously not be a good type of acceptance, right? There's good acceptance and there's bad acceptance. When it comes to being kids, we find out early in life, even from our playground days, that the hard part about worldly acceptance is that the rejection or acceptance we find is incredibly tangible. Like if, you, if you're a little kid and you're just learning to function with other kids and they reject you, like that's heartbreaking, is it not? Like that scars people. There's probably people in this room, whatever age you're at, that can look back and say, I, I was scarred by being rejected at this time or with those kids. To be accepted or rejected was incredibly tangible for most of us. And of course, it seems like because we were created for the purpose of having an intimate relationship with God and with others, that we all hunger for acceptance deep down inside. But I think the question for most of us is, not will we be accepted, because you you can always find acceptance somewhere, right? Even in this world, someone, somewhere, somewhere will accept you. If for nothing less, for the sake of using you, you'll find acceptance somewhere. The question is, will you settle for a lesser acceptance than the acceptance you can have from God? Will you settle? And according to this verse, according to Scripture, and if you settle for the world, then you're settling for something less. Um, I, I know there's a turmoil involved here. Um, <laughs> Sunday night, how many of y'all watched the Super Bowl? A couple of you, most of you. It was actually a really good game, even if you don't like football. It was, it was pretty awesome. 
Tara and I went to a Super Bowl party. Tons of people there. It was just in a house, but it was just a whole bunch of families, lots and lots of little kids. And it was, um, let's, how do I say this? For an introvert, it was emotionally stimulating. Um, it, it, it was just kind of mind-blowing. I After the first quarter, I was like, I can't do this for very long. We, I was going to stay the whole game, but we couldn't make it past halftime. Lots of great people, great food. It was fun, but it was just a lot of people. And Silas had the opportunity to interact with a whole bunch of little kids. I mean, we're talking a whole bunch of little kids. And at first, I was just like, okay, I'm a dad. Just going to let him play, have fun. But he wants acceptance from me and Mama but he also wants acceptance from these little friends. And at the beginning, he would be running back and forth between us. And I could tell, you know, he, he was making sure, you, you okay, Dad? You guys are good? And then he would go back and play with his friends. And he'd go back and see us. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, go play. And I remember I heard him cry. And I went in the other room, and I found this other little kid who, who was bigger than him. It was just kind of mean. And he had taken something from Silas. And normally, like, even if it's not your child, but your child's involved, you kind of do this whole, okay, guys, share. And you try to make it a teaching moment. And at usually you get some respect, right? This little kid, I'm not proud of the rest of the story, but this little kid, man, he, he, he saw me and he growled a little bit and he took what he stole and he just kind of pushed Silas away and started playing with it. And like, just, just like, it, I was just like, okay, whatever. And um, I'm not proud of this, but I, I, I looked at Silas and I said, see, this is a mean kid. Don't be like him. Don't be like him. You can respond with love. Like a little kid didn't want to have anything to do with correction. He just wanted to be a punk little kid. And I backed off, and I'm starting to stew. Like I'm, I'm kind of one of those, like I get riled up a little bit. It's hard to calm me down. And I'm sitting back there watching the game. I'm thinking, man, that little punk kid, why don't his parents do something? And, you know, you all the thoughts, all the feelings, just very protective over my little boy. And, and then about 15 minutes later, I heard Silas crying again. And I went into the room, and they were in this box. And this kid was on top of Silas, kind of pushing him down. And Silas is looking up at me, and he's bawling. He's got a big old crocodile, tears coming down. And like, I'm just like, oh, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't do this to my boy. And then I, I, I just tried to call myself. But again, I'm not proud of this. I picked up with one arm that little boy like this. And I picked up Silas with one arm. And I said, Silas, it's time to to go and, and I pulled him aside and I said, you know, are you okay? Are you okay? And he, within, he, he was like, you know, okay. He came back after he walked away for a little bit, came back 10 seconds later, said, daddy, you're mean. And I was like, what? He said, you're mean for taking me out of that box. I was protecting him because this little kid is just a little rebel beating up on you. And he didn't see that. And I was just like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. I told Tara on the way home, I said, I can't hang out with him when he hangs out with his friends. As like growing up, like I'm going to be that dad. It's going to be hard for me. Why? Because those kids <laughs> are going to live a whole bunch of different ways that ain't going to agree with how I think they should live. And Silas, he's going to constantly, I wish it wasn't so, but he's going to be torn between the ways of these little kids and the world and what he views, even though I got plenty of flaws, obviously from this story, you can tell he views me as righteous. And he wants acceptance from both ends. But the ways of the Father do not gel with the ways of the world and vice versa. Let me ask you. Whose acceptance do you value most? 
Is it God's? Because if it truly is, you might want to take a look at your life and see if you're running around trying to gain some acceptance from people that, man, I'm not saying it's totally worthless, but it don't matter in comparison to God's acceptance. And if you find yourself trying to toe the line and say, I want to be accepted by God. I get it. The Bible says I can be, but I also want to be accepted by the world. You need to understand there will be constant turmoil for the rest of your life if you're playing that game. Because they don't gel. Acceptance from one means rejection from the other. But children of God choose the better acceptance, the one from God himself. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. It's the third time we see it. God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Typo there. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. We will see him as he is. The fourth thing we see is that children of God dream of the future. Children of God are dreamers. They dream of the future. He says, we are. So currently, we know right now that we can be children of God. But what we will be has not yet appeared. So what does that mean, appeared? We're talking about, again, Jesus and when we see him, right? Um, in his, and we're not going to go into a ton of details because we can't give these details. We know that one day in the final resurrection, we will be in the resurrected form. It will be probably similar to Jesus' resurrected form. But we're going to see Jesus in his glory. When he comes back, uh, when we die, whatever, we're going to see him in the end We're going to see him in his glory. And we're going to look like him because we will see him as he is. So here's what John is saying. John's saying, listen, you might be hurt because of your rejection from the world. They might not understand how you live, but don't shrink back. Don't lose heart. Because when you follow Jesus and you realize he's transforming you, he's changing you, he, he's, he's doing something in you, and it has eternal value, eternal purpose, it's working towards this final day that when you see him face to face, you will be transformed into his glory. It's going to be a day that is beautiful and amazing. Of course, many of you know this verse, but I'll read it to you again in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image, the image of God as Spirit, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so Paul says it, John says it, and one day... One day we're going to be like Jesus. Now you're never going to get there fully on earth. We call this sanctification, the process of becoming more like him and less like your old life. (coughs) But you will, you will have a future hope that is better than your current reality. 
And church, that is important to remember because every single day of your life, regardless of what you are going through, you have a choice over and over and over and over. Every hour, every minute, you can choose to focus on the things in front of your face or you can focus on the spiritual truths that you might not be able to see, obviously, but you know they are a reality. They are a reality. We've all hoped in future things here on earth, haven't we? Like, like we've all said things like, oh man, can't wait for the day when those student loans are paid off. That's good, right? That's good. Some of you all are in that boat. Or, or, oh boy, can't wait. Can't wait until this remodel is done. I can't wait until my health is better. Can't wait until I can get that car. Can't wait until we have kids. Can't wait until we get into our own home. Can't wait until you fill in the blank. All these earthly hopes. And yet many of us have seen many of those things realized. Tell me, how, how much hope in their fulfillment did you have? Like when, it, when you actually got there, how good was it? You see, that, that's a falsehood that we have. That's a deceit that we believe these things are, are fulfilling. They might be good. They might be valuable. Man, I hope you get out of debt. I hope you don't ever get in debt. I hope you finish that remodel. But ultimately, these things, they're not worth dreaming about. Like dreaming about the day we're going to see Jesus face to face. Like dreaming about the day when we're not going to have tears, where we're not going to be broken, when we don't have to worry about our health, when we could care less about the remodel being done. We don't have to worry about where we're going to live next because we are citizens in heaven. Like when, when you focus on that, you start to find the things of this earth fade away. The worries and the stresses of this earth fade away. And those things are hopeless. Of course, you know, talking about kids tonight, I got, a, I got another size story. But he, last night, before bed, I said, what are you going to dream about, buddy? And I say this almost every night before bed. And he says, I'm going to dream about God. And I said, oh, that's good. That's good. Dream about God. I don't know what that means. I hope he has like some kind of amazing revelation of God in the nighttime. But he says, I'm going to dream about God. Woke up this morning and he was sitting at the dinner, t- or the, yeah, the dinner table by himself eating breakfast. And it was just me and him. And uh, he was staring out the window. It was just very serene, very peaceful. And I said, Si, what did you dream about last night? I could tell he was in a fairly serious mood. He might actually answer me instead of being a three-year-old and just say something goofy. He was looking out the window as I was behind him, and he said, I dreamed about God. And I stopped what I was doing. I was like, okay, maybe like maybe he'll tell me something. Like, maybe something happened, right? And I said, oh, yeah. What did God say to you? Did he say anything? Again, he's looking out the window. With his back turned to me, and he said, yes. And he paused. I was like, this is going to be good. And he said, he told my monkeys, he has two little monkeys, one named Coconut, one named Monkey Do. They were sitting there at the table watching me breakfast. He told my monkeys, Earth cadets, prepare for blast off to the moon and to the stars and to that tree and to the table and to the floor. And then he looked back at me, almost like a movie scene. And he said, and God created the moon and the stars. And I was like, Wow. <laughs> That's pretty good. Like you, that's a weird story, and I know you just made most of it up. <laughs> but 
you still kind of kept your mind on the big picture, right? Like the whole earth cadet thing. He's all into rockets right now. That's a weird story. And what he said to the monkeys, I don't believe any of that. But like at the end, he was thinking, God created the moon. God created the stars. Like his little three-year-old mind with his three-year-old drama, with his crazy little reality, it's going all over the place. But even at three, he's still just a smidgen in there, just a, a silver lining, still focusing on the big picture and eternal truth and eternal purposes. As goofy as it is, man, kids dream. They dream. And there's a million worthless, hopeless things that we could dream about. But man, I love even that silly story here in my boy. Tell me just one truth about God in the midst of his silliness. And say, that's what you were dreaming about? Oh, what are you dreaming about? What are you dreaming about? Let me ask this and challenge you in this. As you look at your current situation, your drama, your stress, ask yourself, man, how is this transforming me from one degree of glory to another? How is this moving me down the path of sanctification to be more like Jesus and less like my old self? Because you can find in the midst of your drama silver linings. And if you find that that you're putting a lot of hope, a lot of dreams, a lot of effort into things that don't have eternal purposes... It's a good time to back off from them. Last but not least, verse 3. So children dream. In verse 3 it says, And everyone who thus hopes in him, so that's the Father, that's Jesus, in him purifies himself as he, that's God, is pure. Last but not least, children grow up. Children grow up. John says, everyone, everybody say everybody, everyone, everybody who thus hopes. So again, this is where your hope is in him. Again, that hope is in his great love for us. What Jesus has done on the cross, the good news, the gospel purifies himself as he is pure. What John's saying is when you realize, when you are overwhelmed by the love of God, the amazing awesomeness, remember go back to verse 1, that has been lavished on us. That's the context of this. John's saying, oh, the love that God has given us, that we should be called children of God. When you are blown away by that, purity, purifying yourself becomes your priority. That's what happens when you mature. You say, I'm preparing myself for the day I'm going to see him face to face. I'm purifying myself. You see, parents, they want their kids to grow up, but they do it with mixed emotions. On one hand, parents, you know this. You want your child to grow up in maturity so they don't do childish things anymore. That's good. On the other hand, you're sad because you don't want your child to ever grow up and not have that closeness that they had with you when they were babies. He says, that's why I wanted you to begin with, that we would have this close relationship. So don't ever grow out of that. Listen, Christian maturity, Christian maturity, when it comes to living out our identity as a child of God, is on one hand, never, ever, ever, ever losing that closeness. That, that simple faith, that simple trust that we had when we were little. 
when we were new to the faith, when we were saying, I just gotta, I just gotta eat the word of God. I, just, I gotta chew on this. I need this. This is life. I, I need to learn about God. I want, I want a relationship with Jesus that is, that is close, that is mind blowing. Christian maturity is never losing that, but at the same time, maturing in holiness, in purity, putting away those childish ways. To purify means to wash clean. To wash clean. I want to show you a picture here as we start to wrap this up. But I should give you just a little bit of context. Um, A couple nights ago, I I was at uh, the gym and I pulled in, put the car in park and... I was about to run for the doors because I usually don't wear my coat and, and, and I was just wanting to get inside. And so I opened up the door and I put my foot down and I immediately, when I tried to put pressure on my foot, slipped and I smacked my elbow on the door and I was like, oh, why? what in the world? Goofy. And I'm thinking, what in the world could I be slipping on? Uh, and, and my first thoughts were, it ain't freezing out, right? So there's, there's, no, there's no ice. Um, and then I thought maybe, maybe oil or something like who knows, but I slipped, I slipped, I looked down. Let me show you what I saw. I looked down and you, you can't tell cause it's all black. Probably. I slipped on a banana peel. I slipped on a banana peel. I'm 32 years old. Never in any of my stories. If I told you, Hey, top 100 things that you think I did yesterday at the gym, would you say, I bet you slipped on a banana peel. Why is that so silly to slip on a banana peel? Because that's something in cartoons. That's something that like kids do. That's something that the Looney Tunes do. Like full grown adults don't slip on banana peels. That's right up there with, well, the dog ate my homework kind of thing. Like that's just, that doesn't happen in real life to real people. How many people have actually ever in their life slipped on a real banana peel. No, you see that in cartoons. That's something that kids joke about. It should not belong in the life of an adult. It's out of place. Let me, let me ask you, as we wrap up tonight, do you got some immaturity in your adult life, some childlike foolishness, some pride? Some things that God said you needed to put those away. Back when you were a kid, you might have done those things, but not anymore. Things that maybe he's been speaking to you about, prompting your heart about, but you just won't leave them behind. Wash them away. Let the blood of Jesus wash them away. Purify yourself. Take sanctification serious. That's what... Living an identity as a child of God is that you put away childish behavior. Listen, the reason God calls us children, it's not only this unique, awesome relationship we have to be in his family, but it's that God wants you as an adult 
and all of your worries and all of your stresses and all the drama that you and I have going on, that we would be able to push it away and say, you know what? I don't have all of life figured out, but I trust that Jesus died on the cross for me. I trust that he is the Lord of my life and I'm going to follow him. And I'm going to, like a child, come to him with childlike faith, childlike dependence, childlike trust. And I'm going to believe that God can do big things. I'm going to believe that not only can he save me, but he can heal me, that he can save souls, that he can transform this world. I'm going to believe that God is powerful and that he is holy and that he is mighty and that he can do things that only God can do. Because I can tell you this, from a father's perspective, nothing makes me happier than when my little boy, even in his ignorance, believes I can do anything. Believes that there's nothing daddy can't do. And God's saying, I want you to be like that with me. Have you Have you lost that childlike faith? Have you become bitter and skeptical? Have the things that you've experienced in this world made you angry? God's saying, come back to me tonight with childlike faith. Believe that I can heal anything, that I can save anyone, that I can do anything according to my will and my power. Tell you what, something like that, a simple return to childlike ways in faith and putting away childlike ways when it comes to immaturity is exactly what God had in mind when he said, I want you to be my children. I want you to be my children. And we would see revival if we all took that to heart. Don't ever forget that your identity as a child of God is all because God's child was sent to die for you, that you could be part of this family. His only child made room so that many children could be part of his family. And that love changes everything. Let's pray.